Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, let's take our Bibles again this evening, and we're turning to Revelation chapter 14 tonight. Uh, Revelation chapter 14. Again, our purpose in these studies is really to highlight uh, the various ways in which the church, the struggling, suffering church, are particularly encouraged in the times in the first century, and then also by implication, uh, our own souls can be encouraged in the Word. And tonight I want to focus really on the verse number 13 of chapter 14, but let's read 12 and 13 of this chapter. Revelation 14, verse number 12, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And they heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Amen. May God indeed encourage our hearts in His Word tonight. Well, keeping chapter 14 in your minds, if I can turn you back to chapter 12 and remind you in chapter 12, we saw that the spiritual warfare is something that consists and continues in the gospel age. Verse number 12, it says there, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And then we saw that the woman then flies into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, verse 14, time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And we're seeing here, therefore, that the church is a suffering church, a church that is under the persecution of the evil one. Though, praise God, even in their persecutions, they are protected and preserved and provided for in their place in the wilderness. The devil is seeking to destroy the church. But the church, and indeed the individual believer, is safe and secure in Christ Jesus and I said last time that when you leave chapter 12, you move into the next two chapters, 13 and 14, and they do give us some more detail regarding the warfare. And we see the continued work of the dragon, verse 4 of chapter 13. The dragon is said to give power unto this beast, the beast in verse 1, that rises out of the sea. And the beast with seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And we're seeing here the vision of a beast. And you will note the beast here in verse number five is said to speak great things and blasphemies. And the beast has certain power, and here please note the time scale, to continue forty and two months. Remember this period of time? Uh, three times and a half, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. Uh, these are consistent time references in these chapters in Revelation. 
And so the beast here in uh, the opening section of chapter 13 is the beast that is waging war against the people of God for this entire gospel age. We see him making war there, verse number 7, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Again, it's not my purpose to try to explain all of the imagery in these chapters. I do think we should see in this beast not an individual. Again, the beast is existing over at least 2,000 years to this point. The entire gospel age being marked by the beast waging war against the people of God, against the saints, verse number 7. And so it's not one particular individual, but rather given the imagery of crowns, and horns, it is likely civil, political power that in every generation wages war against the Lord's people. Not just today, but in every generation there have been those, again, in the political realm, in the civil realm, in the realm of government, that have waged war and sought to hinder the work of God. The beast at work, the ungodly, of course, are they that worship this beast they worship and praise the beast. We've got that in verse uh, number four. They worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast. And the ungodly give their allegiance to all that this world has to offer. But the genuine believer holds fast. Verse number nine of chapter 13, those that have an ear, they hear. And they are those, verse number 10, the patience and the faith of the saints. They are those that endure the pressure to conform to this world in all of its forms. That's beast number one, continuing the warfare that the devil has brought against the church. When you get to verse number 11, then you find another beast. And I beheld another beast, two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Well, if the first beast would speak of, against civil realm and civil authority waging war, well, it seems likely here that this beast has in some form a religious identity. It has, again, these horns like the lamb, antichrist, pretending to be in the place of Christ, the one that is against Christ, because the dragon is the one that speaks, and speaks as a dragon. Not, it's not the dragon, but speaks the words of the devil, but in the guise of the lamb. Now, this is the picture, again, of false prophets. Now, how long this beast will wage war, again, is a matter of, of much conjecture and different ideas. You see that he continues the work of the first beast, verse number 12, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. And so this, perhaps this religious institution, this religious individual, perhaps, well, he has the backing of the political realm. And he comes and wages war again against the people of God. He is the one that brings great destruction. And I do think, and this is just, a, again, a, a suggestion that he more than likely corresponds to the individual, the man of sin, the son of perdition, in 2 Thessalonians. And that as we saw in chapter 11, verse number 7, uh, there is a beast that comes and, and really destroys the witnesses to the point the witnesses appear as dead. And so it may well be there's a correlation here between uh, these particular beasts. So you've got the gospel age, 
And the beast waging war for the 42 months, and then the second beast for a shorter time, but bringing much deception. In fact, in such a time that, were it possible, even the elect could be deceived. Praise God, it's not possible. And so that's the point of the chapter, isn't it? Whatever the beast is, whether it be this first or second beast, we have again the assurance that the trouble will be great. The people of God will endure such, perhaps, at the end of the age will be the level of suffering that it will be impossible, essentially impossible, to function in life without giving allegiance to the beast, without receiving the mark of the beast. You can't buy or sell. And the number of this beast, again, the number of man, 600, three score and six, 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 not seven, 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 a parody of perfection, but rather a mark of a man who is seeking to bring influence upon this world, hindering, hindering even individuals on their ability to function in ordinary trade and commerce. And so many, many will receive the mark of the beast on their foreheads. They will receive that. And they'll show their allegiance to this beast, but not the child of God. Chapter 14, verse 1, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. And if I can put this insertion here, and these, they do not have the mark of the beast. Rather, they have the father's name written in their foreheads. Verse 1. And so though the opposition is intense against the people of God, though these beasts have great power and great authority, God is able to keep his own because they belong to him. That's our great comfort. And so again, we can spend much time deliberating as to who was or who is or who may be the beast or this beast or that beast. Uh, let's just sit upon the comfort that whoever the beast is, the people of God will not be deceived. They will not take the mark. It's impossible for a child of God to receive the mark of the beast. Can't do it. And yet many believers live in fear and tremble. Oh, am I getting the mark of the beast? Can't, that can't happen. They belong to God, not the beast. And so you have this assurance again that the people of God are, are safe and secure in Christ Jesus. And so... So many questions regarding details and timing. Again, I don't pretend for a second of all the answers. But I can tell you one thing. Whatever is now or then, the Lord's people belong to God. And they will persevere and they are safe in Christ Jesus. And so the encouragement all the more, again, to a suffering church in the first century, under demissions or Nero's persecution, whatever the case may be, they are suffering greatly. Don't fear. Hold fast. And the same comes down through the age of time to us. Do not fear, hold fast. Because this is a redeemed company. Verse 3 and 4 of chapter 14. And they sing a song. They have not defiled themselves with women, likely some sort of spiritual uh, immorality. And it says, These are they, verse 4, which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me, and they shall never perish. Here's John chapter 10 now in Revelation chapter 14. They follow the Lamb. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb, the choicest of the harvest, the first fruits, precious to God, valuable in the sight of God. In their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Chapter 14, verse 5. And so you see a contrast here. There's the beasts, and there's the lamb. There's the followers of the beast, and there are the followers of the lamb. 
Those who follow the beast, verse number 9 and following, they shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And those that have the mark on his forehead or in his hand, verse number 9, those who worship the beast, they shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. See the contrast? You follow the beast, you're part of his company, you're going to suffer the wrath of God. But if you follow the lamb, well, verse number 12, uh, here is the patience, the perseverance of the saints. And I heard a voice from heaven, verse 13, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. You see the whole point? I've taken some time to, to lead you down through the chapters that you appreciate afresh that the safety of the Lord's people is secure even as the wrath of God is poured out upon the ungodly. In that great day of wrath, we need not fear. We're saved from wrath through Him. All those great truths that we love and rejoice in in the Word of God. And so we see in verse number 13, really, the eternal prospect of the child of God, the eternal prospect of the persevering saint. And what is, what is our eternal prospect? What is, the, what is the blessedness of the child of God? Well, uh, three things to note. And all of them point us to Christ Jesus. First of all, please note, in the prospect of the persevering saint, our hope in death is Christ. They are said, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Blessed. Again, it's a term that we use so broadly, and, uh, and it's used very broadly in the Word of God, but in its, in its essential meaning, it has the idea of being the opposite of curse. To be under the curse of God is, again, to be absent from enjoying the blessing of God. The curse of God that comes on man for sin. The day that is thereof, thou shalt surely die under the curse. But Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And therefore the, ch the children of God, those who've been redeemed, verse number four, they've been redeemed from the curse of the law. They are therefore those, in verse 13, you're blessed. They're enjoying the favor of God. They're not under the curse of God, the threatenings of God. They're under the favor of God. And thus, the believer can approach death, the enemy, with hope because they are in Christ. They are blessed when they die in the Lord, in union with Christ Jesus. Such find themselves in safety because they're in union with Christ, and Christ is their righteousness. Verse number five, in their mouth was found no guile, for there without fault before the throne of God. You know what you see there? You see the fulfillment of redemption in the life of an individual, that they are perfectly pure in God's sight because of Christ's righteousness. But also now in this time, they are the spirits of just men made perfect. They are those who have been redeemed and therefore they stand accepted before God. But only because of redemption and only because of what Christ has done. And hence, death brings no fear. But death brings no fear only because of all that Christ has done for us. So our only hope in death is Christ. If you reach the end of your life and you're approaching your final breaths and you find yourself resting upon some religious performance or practice or profession, and if you say, I, I, I don't fear death because I, and whatever you put after that, you're on very shaky ground. 
The only thing a believer can say when they approach death is, I do not fear death because of Christ, because of all he has done for us and for me. As you turn back to 2 Corinthians, please, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we often turn, when you think of death and the believer's confidence, we often turn to Hebrews chapter 2, don't we? Uh, Christ, he tasted death for every man. He suffered death for us. He therefore destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, delivered us from the fear of death. All our lifetimes subject to bondage. We, we see Christ is delivering us from death. But here I want you to see, I want you to see the confidence of the child of God in light of what Christ has done for us. You see, verse number 9, it says this, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And Paul's highlighting the fact that there is a judgment day coming, and judgment day when all will face the judgment seat of God and his great desire is that they be accepted verse number nine he wants acceptance that's in the context by the way in the chapter of death verse number one our earthly house were dissolved he's describing death here verse number six why we're confident knowing that whilst we're at home in the body we're absent from the lord but whether we're present or absent we want to be accepted of him you see how the the theme runs down he's got death in his mind and when he thinks of death he thinks of judgment it's appointed unto men once to die then judgment he thinks of all these things and his great burden is how can i be accepted how can i be accepted and so he says in verse number 11, before he answers the question in many ways, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And what is that persuasion? They persuade men to be reconciled to God. And so there's the answer. How can a man be accepted in the sight of God, in the sight of Christ on that last day, only when they're reconciled to God through Christ? And what is the ground of that reconciliation? Well, of course, it's verse number 21. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How can a sinner be reconciled to God? Only by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to them. Christ died for them, therefore they are not guilty. Christ lived for them, therefore they are righteous. Therefore they can stand before Christ on judgment day in the certain knowledge that they're accepted. You see, it all comes together. That the believers' great hope in that day when they consider their earthly body being dissolved, when they look towards death, their only hope is in Christ and his work. Therefore, we persuade men to be reconciled to God. You see, when you think of Revelation chapter 14 and the blessedness, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord, you're seeing again the very basic gospel truth that our only hope is in the Lord. As we enter Jordan, we must make sure that we enter Jordan only in Christ. It's the only way we'll get to the other side. And so may God help us again to uh, consider this carefully. And as we even pray for, pray for lost souls and lost loved ones, and we think of some, and they're, they're heading towards Jordan, our great burden, our desire must be that they find themselves in Christ. They come to believe in the Lord and are saved. Our only hope in death is Christ. But secondly, the believers rest. The prospect of the saint, the persevering saint, their rest in death is also Christ that they may rest from their 
labors. This is not the first reference to, to rest in Revelation. It was used over in chapter 6 and the verse number 11. Again, with regards to the people of God, white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said that they should rest yet for a little season. Just making the point that the rest of the child of God is not just a rest that waits for Christ's final return. There's a fullness of the blessing there in, in our resurrected bodies, but we enjoy rest even as we wait, if you like, waiting for the consummation of the age. But be as it may, this rest is in stark contrast with the torment of those who are suffering the wrath of God. Back to chapter 14, verse number 10. Now those who drink the wine of the wrath of God, they are tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. There's torment here, not rest. Torment. And the same contrast was used over in Isaiah chapter 57. It refers to the believer, they shall rest in their beds, but the wicked are like a troubled sea when it cannot rest. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. That's the beginning and the end of Isaiah 57. But please turn, uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. And here, this promise of rest, again, we've got to look at this and say, well, what is this rest of the believer? Well, you will know in Hebrews chapter 4, there's a reference again to rest. Verse 1, let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, and if you should seem to come short of it. In the previous chapter has highlighted the unbelieving Israel in the wilderness. Uh, they had the promise of rest, the promise of entering Canaan, but they hardened their hearts through unbelief. No, do not harden your heart through the deceitfulness of sin. The warning. The warning that they, through unbelief, could miss out on the rest. Verse 19 of chapter 3. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear. That's the point of chapter 4. In the Old Testament, unbelief is used to warn the people about their unbelief. But know what it says in verse number 14. For we are made, this is chapter 3, sorry. For we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Here what I'm asking you to see is, the warning here is unbelief. Of succumbing to unbelief and therefore not entering rest. And so here the apostle says, we are made partakers of Christ. If we do not succumb to unbelief. If we hold fast. And so the point is, being partakers of Christ is equivalent to entering rest. And so over in Hebrews chapter 4 and the verse number 10, it says, For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us, there, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. So who's the rest in verse number 10? It's Christ has entered into his rest. Therefore, we are to labor to enter into that rest. Christ has ceased from his works as God did from his. So God in creation, Christ in new creation could say it's finished. Therefore, he enters into his rest and we strive to enter into that rest by holding to Christ in faith. And the point is simple, that Christ is our rest. 
We enter into all that he has accomplished. And so if rest is the opposite of turmoil, rest therefore is the peace and the joy that is found in Christ alone. And so Christ is our rest. So what does God do when he rests from his labors? He says it is very good. And Christ rests from his labor. He enters into the joy that was set before him. And Christ said, it's very good. And so we come, we rest and we rejoice in Christ. This world is marked by trouble and turmoil and anxieties and sorrows. We struggle to know anything of real rest and real joy. So what a prospect it is. Though for a season now we labor, we have the prospect of one day resting in Christ. That's our hope. Rest. I don't know about you, but there are some days I want nothing more than to rest. Heart is so heavy, it's so full of turmoil, anxieties, and fears. And I look to this point and I say, Praise God, I'm going to be set free from all of this world. I'm going to find myself resting from my labors and enjoying Christ. Which leads to the last thought, and that is our reward in death is Christ. Our reward in death is Christ. Know what it says here? Their works do follow them. The works, they don't go before us. Works do not prepare the way. They don't, uh, they don't earn or write for heaven. But our works are not neglected. Hebrews 6 reminds us, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. If God won't forget it, then it's got some importance. And of course, in the Bible, the ideas of rewards are taught. Paul refers to obtaining a crown, an incorruptible crown, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. Of course, as he comes to the end of his life, he refers to the fact he's fought the good fight, finished the course. There's a crown of righteousness laid up for him, not only for him, but for all those who love the appearing of the Lord. So what is this crown? What are the rewards? Well, here I encourage you, do not see the crown as something uh, literal, but rather see it as a picture of something greater than the physical crown. Christ is greater than any temporal crown. The crown is a picture of the prize, the reward. And Paul tells us, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, if life is consumed by Christ, death is only gain by having more of Christ. There's only gain in death if we get more Christ. That is a sense of more of Christ and the nearness of his presence. The lamb is the light thereof. Is that not the hope when you get to the end of Revelation? That it's more of Christ? We see him. We understand. There's no barrier of sin. Unbroken communion. Continual worship. Without any distraction. Without any sin hindrance. Without any discouragements. That's our reward. It's more Christ. And so our works follow us and we gain the reward of having more of Christ in our lives. This is, I believe, a Christ-centered view of heaven. That's the beauty of these pictures. They give us a view of heaven that points us to our Savior. And if our view of heaven is Christ-centered, then it encourages us, it challenges us to make sure that our life on earth is Christ-centered. Not following the world or false teachers. Not giving allegiance to this beast or that beast, but rather going against the world and loving Christ, hoping alone in Christ. Resting in Christ, living for Christ, that all of our lives are consumed by our love for Jesus Christ. 
This is what it is to be a child of God, to long for Christ. And that longing does not begin the moment of our death. It begins on earth, it continues through life, and it's fulfilled in death. More of Christ. More of Christ. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.